thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Julia Ravy and this week I'm joined by Harry Lewis. Coming up in this programme, how the war in Ukraine may be impacting the spread of infectious disease, the uncovering of a lost ship after 107 years, and why constellations remain constant across cultures. Plus, we'll be exploring behavioural change. Why is it hard to stick to New Year's resolutions? And are there methods that can help us along the way? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First, to our top story, two weeks into the war in Ukraine, we've seen heart-rendering footage of people fleeing the Russian attack with what little they can carry. Quite rightly, the reporting is focused heavily on what's happening to people and where they are going. But one issue that's not received much media attention is the question of infectious diseases. Conflicts always breed outbreaks, and packing people together in evacuations, refuge or shelter settings is the perfect opportunity for diseases to spread. Although it's fallen off the front page, COVID-19 still not gone away and rates of vaccination uptake are low in Eastern Europe. The region is also a hotspot for drug-resistant TB. Chris Smith spoke with Kate White, who's the head of the emergency unit at Medicines Sans Frontier. In Ukraine, prior to this conflict, there were quite low vaccination coverage rates in terms of routine immunisation and also in relation to COVID-19, which means that this population has a higher risk of contracting some of those diseases. Do you know what the vaccination rate was for COVID? It was roughly around 35% of the population. So that's extremely low, yes. So that means then that if we've got lots of people A, being corralled together in packed railway carriages, in underground shelters, and then in refugee centres, that there is the potential brewing for a big outbreak here. Yeah, there is. But it is extremely difficult for people to to deal with that in those really, really tight, closed settings. They don't have the opportunity to take the measures that everybody talks about in relation to COVID. I mean, in many places, people are struggling to meet their day-to-day needs let alone be able to reinforce those measures as well. So what measures are being put in place then? Or have people not kind of realised they need to grasp this nettle and they need to do it quick to make sure that we don't let these diseases, including COVID, escape? You know, it's more a case of the system has just been so incredibly overwhelmed right now. For example, in Poland, there is approximately 150 Forty to 150,000 people crossing the border every day. 
that is three times more than the peak that they experience in sort of summertime holidays. So if you can imagine just every day that sheer stress on the system, it's not had time to put in place anything that's going to help prevent some of this. And then from an individual perspective, when you've had to leave your home and flee extremely fast with what little possessions you can, prevention of illnesses like COVID falls way, way, way down on your priority list. And so trying to get a system in place that can encourage people to to put that somewhere on their priority list and make sure that we're able to kind of have that prevention for transmission is really important, but it's going to take a little while to be able to put that in place. One of the other big issues is that the World Health Organization has, has earmarked previously Ukraine and, and the environs of Ukraine in Europe as one of the hotspots in the European region for TB. Mm-hmm. And that spreads the same way. Again, packed surroundings, lots of people in close proximity under extreme stress. So really, that's a longer term challenge, isn't it, that we need to worry about as well? There's two elements to that. I will start with the somewhat easier one, which is for those people who were already on treatment. In terms of Ukraine, one of the factors around TB was that there were many cases of drug-resistant TB. And so the regimen that people were previously on is really important to maintain. The good part about being on TB drugs is that even though you might not have finished your course and be uh, cured, once you have been on the drugs for a certain period of time, it's actually quite short, it's like a week, you actually very significantly drop the ability to transmit TB to other people. Making sure that that group of people still has access to the specific drugs that they were on is really, really important. And is someone worrying about that? Is that actually a priority? Because I haven't seen that documented in any newspaper, in any medical paper, or any medical writings. Someone saying, look, we've got a part of the world where there's a really high TB rate with drug-resistant forms of this disease. There's going to be a lot of people who can't access their normal medicine. We need to sort that out. I think in terms of what's publicly out there, it's probably not a conversation that you see a lot, mostly because it's not the sexy news or the sexy response to this crisis. But amongst the health community that is engaged in this response, it is very much a conversation that is happening. They're just not getting the media coverage because most people are not interested. Luckily, we are. What, <laughs> what was the second point that you were oh, going to make? And the, so the second element is obviously for those who um, have not yet received a diagnosis. Uh, so for them, what's really important is that we have good routine screening of people. Thanks to Kate White there. Now, as we speak, the research vessel SA Agullas 2 is steaming back to port. Aboard is an international expedition tasked with finding the wreck of Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance. The project is led by John Shears, who has over 25 years of experience working in the polar regions with the British Antarctic Survey and Cambridge University's Scott Polar Research Institute. Recently, they've struck gold. Here's Robert Spencer to tell us how, beginning with 
how this story started over a hundred years ago. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months in complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. So ran the apocryphal advertisement, calling for adventurers to join Ernest Shackleton on his fateful mission to cross Antarctica. Fresh out of St. John's College, Cambridge, physicist Reginald W. James answered the call as his son John recounts. My father was visiting a friend in a part of Cambridge that he'd never visited before, when somebody stuck his head out of a window and said, Hey, Jimmy, do you want to go to the South Pole? After a brief interview with Shackleton, where he was asked, among other things, if he minded losing any toes, James and 27 other men set sail on the ship Endurance. The Endurance was actually a yacht that was built to take wealthy tourists hunting polar bears in the Arctic. Pressed into this new scientific service, and despite the concurrent outbreak of the First World War, Endurance set sail from South Georgia for the Weddell Sea. The weather was rough, and experienced sea hands had advised Shackleton to wait. Shackleton said, no, we're going to go, in spite of the advice from the whaling captains. It wasn't long before the ship was stuck in ice. Endurance broke free several times, but eventually the flow held it fast. The decision was taken to spend the winter in the ship and to try and complete the expedition the next year, but the elements would have different plans. Nonetheless, R.W. James got to work with his experiments. There's a picture of him taking observations under the stern of the Endurance. He was doing magnetic observations, but he got very interested in the navigation side of it. They observed eclipses of the stars by the moon, so-called occultations, to maintain the time on their clocks, critical for navigation in the early 20th century. Nine long months passed. But then suddenly on Sunday afternoon, the ice opened and it went down like a stone. Endurance sank 3,000 metres to the bottom of the Antarctic Sea and into another world. The deep Antarctic is quite rich in biodiversity. You have a big range of invertebrate life, you know, animals without backbones. So you have, for example, all kinds of sponges and corals and sea squirts. And then you have quite a high abundance of things like starfish and sea cucumbers and lots and lots of small worm-like things and mollusks in the seabed as well. Adrian Glover from the Natural History Museum has been studying Antarctic sea environments for years. And all those animals are eating typically food which has fallen from the surface layers of the ocean. In any other waters, the sinking endurance would be part of that food chain. Wood gets eaten by these peculiar animals called shipworms. Experiments run by Glover, published in 2013, showed that shipworms were absent in these seas, partly due to a lack of natural food and partly due to the strong circumpolar currents that act as a buffer between these waters and the rest of the Earth's oceans. Thus hope was high that the endurance, if ever found by an expedition, would be in good condition. Earlier this year, such a mission set sail on the S.A. Agullis II, a research icebreaker operated by South Africa. The only clue was the rough, last recorded position of the ship by its captain, aided by James's timekeeping, as the director for exploration, Menson Bound, explains. It wasn't sort of like X marks a spot at all. They broke the search area up into sectors. Eventually, just by really working in a very strict, regimented manner, covering one box, then the next, then the next, guess what? We've found the endurance. The pictures are just remarkable. It's just sitting on the seafloor. The ship is there. It's intact. You can see the paintwork. It's, it's as good as that. It doesn't get any better. It is a beautiful wreck. Quite emotional to see it again. John's brother, Viv, describes a photo he has of the ship from his father's ordeal. I'm looking at it on my wall here, right now. 
it just hangs there. <laughs> and it looks exactly the same, what we saw on the floor of the sea and what I can see on the wall here. You know, by definition, life after this has got to be kind of downhill. <laughs> the 28 men watching Endurance sink in 1915 might have agreed. With little hope left, they set out across the frigid waters in the ship's lifeboats. They made land on Elephant Island before Shackleton and a small crew went further on to South Georgia. It's an epic tale of survival as frigid months passed for the men awaiting rescue. They were besieged by frostbite, heart attacks, mental breakdowns, and a diet almost entirely consisting of seals and penguins. Eventually, at the end of August 1916, Shackleton returned on a Chilean Navy tug and rescued the crew. Over two years had passed since the Endurance sailed, and, despite the ordeal and having to shoot their sledding dogs and ship's cat, not a single man perished. R.W. James would go on to become Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town, and two of his students would win Nobel Prizes. But the ship that could so easily have been his grave rests serenely at the bottom of the Weddell Sea, almost untouched, sailing into immortality. And if you want to read more about that ill-fated quest, you can look for The Endurance, written by Caroline Alexander. That was Robert Spencer reporting. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how our brains decide how to behave. Mm makes me think julia but first we're going to be learning about a new type of housing complex and this has a rather unusual resident yeah it's bacteria which could be used to power the future jenny zhang from the university of cambridge is here to tell us all about it jenny i think we have to start off with the obvious question which is what on earth is this bacteria and how can it produce energy Yes, let me tell you about the lovely uh, inhabitants of these uh, new residents. So cyanobacteria, they're the most abundant life form on Earth, and they're actually the ancestors to some components of plant cells that carry out photosynthesis. But essentially, they are different to other bacteria because they acquire their energy from sunlight, and they use this energy to combine water and air in um, very creative ways to produce complex Mm. molecules like sugars and biomass. Jenny, how do you manage to get that, the energy that's being produced, how do you manage to take that out and create electricity? Yes. So one really fascinating phenomena of cyanobacteria is that they leak electrons to the outside of their cells during photosynthesis. Now, this is a big loss for them since it's really hard work to actually get those electrons in the first place. But it's a really big gain for us because when you place these bacteria on conductive surfaces, that is electrodes, and then shine light on them, they essentially produce free electricity for us. So to answer, I guess, um, the question about, you know, what are these type of housing units that we're designing, essentially we're trying to design electrodes that can collect as many of these waste 
electrons as possible. And these type of structures that we're building, uh, extremely conductive pillars with microscopic structures that can hold a lot of these cyanobacteria. So you can think of them as skyscrapers or, or yeah, yeah, high-rise homes for cyanobacteria cells so that they can be very effective during photosynthesis and, and for us to harvest their electrons. This technology, Jenny, it sounds, you know, converting sunlight into electricity, a lot like our, our solar panels. Am I being naive or is there a big difference between the two? They are very similar, but there is a big difference. So the biggest difference is basically how the electrons are being used in the two different technologies. So solar panels absorb light energy and then they use that light energy to move electrons around in a closed circuit. So by itself, solar panels can only generate electricity. But in the type of technologies that we are trying to develop, they generate electricity because of the movement of electrons, but the electrons aren't in a closed circuit. Our technology is different because of the way that it uses electrons to make new molecules. And so this idea of taking bacteria and generating electricity, I'm assuming it's been around for a little while But I've noticed that that your research has found that you can really generate quite a bit more. Why was it that the theoretical and the actual practical accumulation of energy wasn't reaching its uh, intended or theoretical potential beforehand? Right. Yeah. So actually, yes, scientists have been looking at this for a long time um, and they've been working very hard to, for example, bioengineer different pathways within the bacteria so that they can give up more of their electrons. And these have yielded some some improvements. However, this is a very multifaceted problem. And so I'm really lucky because I'm working with a fantastic team of people with very different expertise who are engineers, chemists, physicists, biologists, and we're all just chipping away at the same problem. So it turns out we've discovered that the one big bottleneck that was stopping us from achieving the high theoretical values that was predicted for a long time was actually uh, the electrode itself. So the electrodes weren't allowing enough of the sunlight to be captured by the bacteria and they weren't capturing all the electrons. So by smartly rethinking the design of the electrodes, we've been able to increase the output by tenfolds higher than the prior art. Um, And this means that we can demonstrate or we have demonstrated that actually those theoretically predicted values are within reach. What could this lead to in terms of energy creation or energy generation could you see these structures actually popping around in places over the over the globe in the future absolutely so i mean dreaming big right so we know that cyanobacteria is highly scalable they can grow pretty much anywhere where there's water air and sunlight and that's why they're the most abundant life form on earth you know you can grow them in your pond they can be found in glaciers in deserts and also in the ocean which covers 70 percent of earth's surface so i can imagine that we can pretty much use these in a huge variety of places but this type of technology would be great for producing you know electricity as well as chemicals so that's what distinguishes them from solar panels they can also be used to make chemicals and and fuels and in doing so in a decentralized manner and hopefully be affordable and sustainable Mm. at the same time because these Mm. materials are highly biodegradable and very renewable yeah and putting them into remote areas would be fantastic what a great use of space jenny zhang there and her research was published in the journal nature materials earlier in the week bioenergy is it a necessary tool in our race to reach zero carbon energy i'll let you decide When you look up at stars in the sky, what do you see? 
You may group certain stars into constellations or asterisms, terms used to describe groups of stars that we like to view as related in some way. Humans have been doing this since time immemorial, placing significance on certain asterisms to tell stories and feel connected to each other and the universe. Now, as James Titko reports, a new study by Charles Kemp from the University of Melbourne in Australia has been looking at the striking way in which cultures across history have developed similar groupings of stars and what this can tell us about how our brains interpret what our eyes are seeing. The night sky is a mystery which connects us all. The great cosmic questions of why and how are defining characteristics of what makes us human. And nothing brings these questions to the forefront of our minds as universally as simply staring directly up on a clear night. Of course, people in different parts of the world see different parts of the night sky. So people in the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere have have different experiences. But still, it's a very important thing that's seen all around the world and it plays such an important role in culture as well. Charles Kemp and a team of scientists from Melbourne have been trying to show that the shared experience of stargazing actually runs a lot deeper than we think. We looked at a total of 27 different cultures uh, drawn from all around the world, including cultures from Europe, Asia, North America, South America, some from Oceania and Australia uh, as well. Their work amalgamates the groupings of stars from astronomers all over the world in a bid to understand more about the way our brains interpret visual stimuli. Maybe not surprisingly, it's rare to find an anthropologist who is expert in astronomy as well, and so is able to align what the local people there are saying with the star names and sort of the accepted groupings that a Western astronomer would know. And so because of this, there are a few really impressive anthropologist astronomers who've kind of had a background in both of those areas. And so the contributions that those people have made are incredibly important to the sorts of analyses across cultures that we were trying to do in our work. And what were the sort of broad conclusions you drew from this comparison? I suppose the number one conclusion was that we think perceptual factors play a bigger role in shaping constellations across cultures than than previously realised. Constellations, or asterisms, are ways of grouping stars together, a practice which has gone on throughout the history of mankind. Previous researchers would have agreed that there's a small handful of constellations in a near universal. These would include things like the Big Dipper and the Pleiades and so on. But normally when scholars talk about this, there's uh, a list of usual suspects that includes maybe about four or five groupings but no others. But if you think about it, if there are these groupings that are near universal across cultures and there are groupings that are one-off, there's probably going to be some kind of gradient in between those two extremes. And there just hasn't been the data before to ask, for example, wealth. So not universal by any means, but if they're appearing in half of the constellations across cultures, well, there's a, a striking regularity there. People all around the globe are working with essentially the same visual system And uh, there are certain groupings that just jump out. It's well known from, I suppose, more than a century of research now on visual perception that factors like brightness and proximity and symmetry and so on affect the patterns that people are able to see uh, when you give them visual displays. Through their work, Charles and his team are advancing the Gestalt theories of perception. Gestalt translating from German as pattern or configuration. Appearing in the early 20th century, 
They were the people who first developed the idea that characteristics such as brightness, proximity and distance between objects were responsible for how we view individual elements and group them together into a whole. And in fact, some of them informally mentioned constellations, so star groupings, as examples of exactly the sort of grouping that, that they were interested in. But as far as I know, nobody ever followed that up experimentally. There are experiments where in the lab people are presented with random dot patterns and what's interesting is to see how those patterns get organized into groups. But no one has ever really tried to use stimuli that look a bit more like actual stars and that, for example, vary in brightness. But I wonder if we could zoom in potentially on some striking similarities maybe between two very disparate sets of astronomers, for example, disparate by way of age or by distance. Examples that really leapt out as as surprising that people had connected together. Well, maybe just one example that comes to mind in the Western tradition. So if you look at the accepted official 88 constellations, there's Corona Australis and Corona Borealis. And so both of them are these groupings of stars that fall along the the arc of a circle. So kind of these smooth curves. And they're both known as crowns, Uh, crowns or wreaths. I think maybe in the Greek tradition, uh, wreath would be just as accurate a description. Uh, One of the cultures in our data set, uh, the people of the Marshall Islands, identify the same two constellations, pretty much. And not only that, they refer to them as as wreaths as well. So in their culture, I think the relevant wreaths are wreaths made out of flowers. But it's kind of, I mean, to me, that's a striking convergence. So they've not only identified, across these two cultures, people have not only identified the same groupings, but they've interpreted them in, in the same way. It's amazing to think of the connections people from completely different points in history may have made between the very same stars. James Titko speaking to Charles Kemp and more details on the star constellations they looked at in the study on the Stellarium website. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Welcome back. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. That's with me, Harry Lewis, and... With Julia Ravey. And we're going to be spending the rest of the episode trying to unpack why it feels so difficult to make changes in our lives. Because I'm not going to lie, Harry, my New Year's resolution hasn't gone too well. Yeah, I, we've kind of spoken about this a bit, Julia, so I know what's going on, but you better let everyone in on the secret. What are you trying to do? So I'm trying to not eat loads of chocolate after my dinner because I end up on a sugar high and then I just can't sleep properly. But I have still been creeping to the cupboard every night. Yeah, I've got um, the same problem, but perhaps a different situation. I've made two New Year's resolutions. One was for my girlfriend and I said I was going to stop taking her for granted. And thank goodness she's not in a studio (laughs) because (laughs) that hasn't gone out very well. But the other one was to get into a gym routine like everybody else and I've been about three times in three months. 
Well, I mean, that is kind of a routine, isn't it? But I'm guessing it's, it's not quite what you had in mind. No, I actually don't really understand as well because I want to go to the gym. So there is this want inside of me, but when it comes down to it, there's always something better to do. Yeah, I think that that's the same with me and that, that makes it even more frustrating, really. I think our situation calls for help from the expert, Harry. We need an intervention. So I reached out to Katie Milkman, who is a behavioural scientist from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, who uses research to find methods for helping people to make change. Well, this one's for you then, Katie. I've made up my mind. I want to change. Why can't I just do it? Change is not just about making up your mind because there are all these internal barriers, not to mention the external ones, right? Do you have the financial resources? Do you have the health resources? All the things you might need. But even if you've got that all in line, our mind is working against us. So the way we're designed, we tend to be present biased, for instance, which means that instead of focusing on long-term rewards, we overvalue instant gratification. That makes change hard. We tend to reach for the path of least resistance, whatever is easiest. That's what we want to do. We often lack confidence in our ability to do something new and challenging. And if we don't have confidence to make a change, then it's really hard. We have all these different barriers. That's just actually a subset of them that are working against us that are part of our design or our operating system. And so all the things we can do to make change a bit easier for us. Yes, thank goodness. Science has lots of great evidence to offer on what we can do to make changes. I do think it's very important to say that the best tools for creating change in your life are going to depend on what the barriers are that are standing in your way. But one of the most common barriers is we think that the best thing to do is find the most efficient path. But a small fraction of people make a different calculation. They actually think, What's the most fun way I can pursue change? And that sounds like a worse way to get there. It's going to take longer, but that's a better path. And the reason is if we pursue change in ways that we find fun, we persist. One way that I have shown we can make change more fun and persist longer is through doing something I call temptation bundling, which is linking something that feels like a chore otherwise with a source of pleasure and temptation. So think only binge watching your favorite TV show while you're on the treadmill. If you can find a source of pleasure that you can link with what would otherwise be a chore, now it transforms the chore into something you might actually look forward to. You did a big study about going to the gym and testing lots of different interventions. Were there any interventions that stood out as being a class above the rest? Yeah. So lots of scientists in a tournament-like style submitted their best ideas for how to motivate people to go to the gym. And then we tested all these different month-long digital programs to motivate exercise against one another. And we did it with about 63,000 Americans who were members of a popular gym chain. It was helpful to get people to make a plan. What are the dates and times when they're going to go to the gym? Then we'd send them text reminders to show up for the gym at that time. And we gave them points that were basically worthless. They were worth about 20 cents per gym visit. It wasn't a huge amount, but it sort of gamified it and gave them a little micro incentive. And then we layered on some additional ingredients. And The most powerful of those additional ingredients, believe it or not, just focused on getting people not to miss two workouts in a row. So normally say you schedule yourself to go to the gym on Thursday and Friday this week, but we designed one version of the program where you'd get a tiny extra sweetener to come back on Friday if you'd missed Thursday. It wasn't enough that you'd ever skip strategically. It was 10 cents, but it was enough 
to give you the sense that it's not a good idea to miss more than one workout in a row. And that turned out to increase gym attendance by 30%. We found lots of other interesting things that increased exercise too, including giving people free audiobooks that they could link with their workouts. That was something that was successful. We also found that telling people lots of other people are exercising, that gives you the sense that this is a social phenomenon. You don't want to miss out. And that increased exercise by about 25%. So the good news is behavioral science is full of insights that can be used to improve our outcomes when it comes to behavior change. After hearing about the success of the interventions in Katie's study, I decided to set the Naked Scientist team a little challenge. (laughs) So over the next week, I want us all to take a walk from Cambridge to Liverpool. I'll agree. So Cambridge to Liverpool is 192 miles. And I did a little very accurate step calculator online, which comes together as 460,800 steps. How many? 460,800 steps. But based on the the data I've had in so far from everyone, we're all walking less than what we need to walk per day. I do about 300 steps a day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not joking. (laughs) Well, you need to do for this 8,228 steps per day for seven days. I've had to take my smartwatch off because my mum keeps calling to ask how many steps I've done. And I, I don't want to be berated anymore. Well, it's a group effort, so you could do less steps than someone else can do more. I like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and we can try and like get to Liverpool, but we might end up somewhere else on the M6. So. <laughs> what do we do when we get to Liverpool? We're going to have a party at my house. We're going to the bingo place. We're going to go and to spice this challenge up, I decided to give each member of the team a different intervention to boost their step count. These interventions included... If you hit your target each day, you will get a treat of your choice at the end of the week. James has been looking at a Tiffany ring recently. (laughs) A daily reminder. Every day receive text message reminder to prompt walking. Yours is so much worse than (laughs) James's. (laughs) A reward during doing the step count. Pick an audiobook of choice and only listen to it while I'm walking. A pre-commitment... I have to sign a contract now to commit to walking the required number of steps. Somehow, Julia, I don't think that these are randomly assigned. (laughs) Planning ahead of time. Add to schedule with reminder for when walk each day. How lucky. I am lucky. I like schedules. A daily reflection exercise. Each day, look at your walking count and think about what you can do tomorrow to improve. And... No intervention. (laughs) Harry seemed happy with that one. The information received today is all the information you will get. This time in a week's time from now, we'll meet again. We'll see if we've hit that target of getting to Liverpool as a group. But yeah, I'll catch you in a week. Will you pay for my lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I really don't look like the kind of person that likes group fun there, do I? Well, you may detest it, but the science doesn't lie. As Katie said, fun activities and doing something social can help motivate us to change. Sure. Something I still don't understand, though, is why we need interventions or tricks to push ourselves to do something that we actually want to do in the first place. Yeah, so Trevor Robbins, a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, can hopefully give us an insight there. So one notion is that there are three basic systems controlling our behavioural output. One of these is a very ancient system, you know, a Pavlovian system. This system is key for making associations. Like if every time a bell rang, you got a piece of chocolate. 
Well, over time, you'd come to expect that little sweet treat upon hearing the sound. From the Pavlovian system, you can assess causal things in the world, but you can't do very much about them. To give you control, you need what we call instrumental behaviour or goal-directed behaviour. Say you walk into a dark room, you might flip the light switch on so you can see what is there. Now that is goal-directed. The aim is to see and the action, turning light on, makes it possible. And then the third system here, which is is probably very ancient, is the so-called habit system. This system links situations and responses so behaviours can be performed in an almost automatic way without much concern for the outcome. So say you walked into a room and one time you switched the light on to find the bulb was broken. But the next time you walked in, even without replacing it, you pressed the switch again anyway. That would show that the behaviour is habitual because you aren't getting the outcome, the light you desire, but perform the action anyway. The balance in our everyday behaviour is among these three control systems and they probably work rather dynamically between themselves. So when we are trying to introduce a new behaviour, like going to the gym or eating more fruit or studying for a test, these are goal-directed. We're performing an action with an outcome in mind. But this system isn't always the best to use, as Ingo Willen from the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience explains. Goal-directed behaviours, they require more computational power, more brain power, so to say. You need more brain power to execute them because they're more complicated. You, You... You are also more flexible and you're more precise and you know sort of the big picture of everything that your behavior has taken place in, but it's more costly in a way. And the habitual behaviors, they would be, you know, like sort of like the low cost eco mode of your brain. You know, like it's, it's not very costly for your brain to compute just a reaction to some stimulus that pops into your visual field. Making behaviors habitual can be beneficial. Over time, with repetition or under certain emotional conditions like feelings of pleasure or avoidance, once new behaviours can transition into habitual responses, saving the brain costly energy. Ingo studies this transition in animals. What we do with our rats is we teach them, you know, that they get food for a certain action. And then at some point you take the food away and see if the rat stops doing this behaviour, which that would be a goal-directed decision. Like there's no food anymore, why would I keep doing this? While if it's habitual, then you know that the animal will keep pressing that lever, even though there's no outcome anymore. So it's extinction resistant in a sense. Exactly what happens in the brain when a behaviour transitions from goal-directed to habitual is still under investigation. These behavioural systems are governed by certain brain circuits, like highways, whose traffic levels are influenced by different chemicals, including a common one you'll know called dopamine. And the idea was that this control of the behavior would switch from one highway to the next and to the next. But Ingo's latest study found something different about dopamine. And in our study, we actually found that this switching doesn't really happen. It seems like that dopamine is present and important in all these highways throughout the entire development of habits. While scientists continue to unpick what happens in the brain when a behavior moves from being goal-directed to habitual, We can learn more about our own preferences for routine responses using questionnaires. Julia volunteered to have her habit tendencies assessed. Oh, good luck, Jules. So I've just logged on to do a questionnaire about personality, behavioural preferences and problem solving. And we'll see how I get on. In the questionnaire, I am being asked to rank certain traits that I think about myself. I tend to change my plans last minute. 
disagree. I avoid situations where unexpected things might happen. Agree. Life is boring if you never take risks and always play it safe. Somewhat disagree. I am boring. I like to plan ahead in detail rather than leaving things to chance. Strongly agree. I like being able to organise everything in advance. Strongly agree. I feel anxious when things change frequently. Agree. Oh, it's done. That was really quick. So now I will await my results. I wonder what that analysis will show. Hi, Julia. Hi, Leo. How are you? Good, how are you? I spoke to Leo Zemigrod from the University of Cambridge who designed this questionnaire. So I look at what makes individuals, some individuals more flexible and adaptable and other people more habitual. I've done the questionnaire. Do you have my results? I do. And Julia, you are one of the most creatures of habits that I've ever seen. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is, it's not a bad thing. It's just we're all different, right? So when I look at your habit profile, we see that you're highest on what's called preference for regularity. So you really like having routines that you, you like, you feel that they're comforting. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, I I find real comfort in routine. And if I don't have routine, I feel all over the place. When it comes to aversion to novelty, that was your least habitual kind of domain. So you actually did look forward to new experiences. But that can help us see what kinds of contexts you will like more or you will like less, where you will thrive, what kind of disorders you might be at higher risk for or more resilient to. But again, this all... All these individual differences always interact with the environment. Wow. And so I'm, I'm obviously a creature of habit. You are indeed. You're an absolute routine fiend, Ravy, with that chocolate fixation of yours. OK, so obviously I may be a bit extreme in my habitual behaviours. Mm, just a bit by the sound of it. If these cheaper, easier to perform behaviours are helpful... That must be quite useful. But if they aren't beneficial to someone's health and well-being, it must be really difficult. Yeah, and Trevor's lab is trying to solve this problem. And he invited me in to learn a little bit more. Most of our day can be governed by habits. We wake up at a certain time, brush our teeth, take a shower, make tea, drive to work, check emails, scroll on social media, eat lunch, do tasks, drive home, cook dinner, watch telly, scroll some more and then go to bed. While certain habits can be good for us, there are other behaviours which may not be as beneficial. We may be in a habit of eating too much sugar or being physically inactive or spending too much time online. And in the most extreme instances, habitual behaviours can be disruptive. Behaviours carried out can do real damage to our health, relationships and life as a whole. There are certain conditions where the goal-directed and habit systems are thought to be compromised, as Trevor Robbins explains. People talk a lot about addiction habits, don't they? I've got a drug habit, I've got a cannabis habit, I've got a smoking habit. In certain disorders, for example, substance abuse and addiction, obsessive compulsive disorder, compulsive eating, compulsive gambling, there's going to be some tendencies to these more automatic behaviours. Trevor is currently trying to understand the underlying biology of obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. OCD 
is a very serious and disabling disorder. I'm talking about people who perform rituals for 12 or 13 hours a day and their lives are shattered. And, you know, we think obsessive compulsive disorder may be a derangement of control over habits. I wanted to learn more about how Trevor and his group are trying to understand OCD, so I paid a visit to his lab. I'm here for yeah to speak to May Reed Healy, who's with Trevor Robbins' group. To hear from PhD student Mairead Healy on how they are studying this debilitating condition. So our lab is focused at looking at the brain basis of compulsive behaviour or how habits are formed in people with OCD. And so we can learn more about the brain basis of compulsions. And how do you go about studying OCD? So sometimes we are using neuroimaging techniques, so that will give insight into what's happening at the brain level. And we also use behavioural tests, so that will give us insight into what cognitive mechanisms are underpinning these behaviours, and also we combine them together so we can get an overall picture of both. This test will take around seven minutes to Mairead let me demo one of these behavioural tests. A rule exists telling you which one is correct. You need the screen displayed several boxes with different patterns in them, I had to select one and got told if it was correct or incorrect. Select a pattern to start. Okay, go for incorrect. We will tell you... And then keep selecting the correct image as the display changed. Try and use the feedback to help you discover the rule. Once it is clear... Which pattern was correct would change throughout the game without me knowing, and this would assess my ability to think flexibly, updating the target pattern as I went through. Have another try. As I complete my task, here is Trevor to explain how, in conditions like addiction, the habit system may take over. One idea would be, for example, a drug like cocaine or amphetamine has its initial hit, and that hits this Pavlovian system, which gives a strong, positive approach tendency. But the issue is what happens chronically when you get this over and over again, because habits are promoted by probably extended training that eventually, you know, a rat responding for cocaine is just like a rat responding for food. And eventually, maybe that behaviour becomes habitual. But then the other thing you've got to realise is that there may be a predisposition to have a relatively weak goal-directed system to begin with. And that's been demonstrated in humans and in animals. So you've got a double whammy. You've got this gradually strengthening habit plus loss of control, which we argue equates to compulsive drug seeking. What happens in the brain of someone with OCD is currently less well understood than addiction, but there are thought to be some similarities in the loss of control of the goal-directed system, based partially in the area of the brain that sits right behind the eyes called the frontal lobe. It turns out that the frontal lobes are relatively disconnected in OCD and, of course, in similar addiction. And that disconnectivity correlates with the degree of compulsive behaviours. So that's pretty amazing that the same area is disconnected and it relates to compulsion in both cases, although the actual nature of the compulsions are different. But we would argue, I think, that probably the habit system must gain prominence as a result of that overall down-regulation of the old directed system. Well done. You have completed the task. 
Amazing. Nice. Yeah, so that task is part of a battery of tasks that we administer to participants. And in OCD, we kind of hypothesize that they will find this task like difficult to do the rule reversal because they'll be kind of stuck in a more habitual behavior. After someone has done this type of test, then what would you go on to do? We have another task that's one of the key tasks that we use because we actually, you get the participant to perform this in the scanner Mm. so that we can relate their behaviour to actually what brain circuitries or brain areas are supporting this behaviour. Now, I was going to get my brain scanned, but sadly, because I have a brace on my teeth, I can't go in the scanner. But what Maraid will be looking out for here is how the brain of people with OCD and individuals without OCD differ in their activity when playing a game like the one I just took part in. The group is also looking at differences in brain chemicals in these systems too, to try to paint a clearer picture of what is going on in OCD and other habitual disorders. Yeah, exactly. We really hope that we can make an impact into the like lives of people who have OCD and better our understanding of habits. We all have to get the balance right between our goal-directed systems and our, our habit-based systems. And so this work is really important for the clinical applications, but also just to have a better understanding of how our, we form habits and how we can you know, improve our daily lives by adapting to our environment in a way that will help us achieve our goals. Hopefully the more we learn about the habit and goal-directed systems, treatments for these conditions can improve. It really struck me what Mairead said there at the end, how we are all looking to strike a balance too. If habits are easier for us to perform, you know, are there ways to build ones that benefit us? Well, there are a variety of tools out there which do offer helpful guidance for building new routines. And it's good news for us because... BJ Fogg, who's the author of Tiny Habits from Stanford University, has offered a helping hand in finally kickstarting our resolutions using his approach for change. Make it super tiny. Set the bar really low. Let's say you want to read more books and many people say, oh, I'm going to read a chapter a day. Well, that takes a lot of time. So instead, in the tiny habits way, you scale back the chapter to a paragraph or even one sentence. And then you find where that fits naturally in your life. Okay, I'll read one paragraph of my book after I sit down with my morning tea. And if you want to read more than one paragraph, you can. But you set the bar so low that every day you can do it really reliably. And you say, good for me. I did my habit. And you move on with your day. And you mentioned a few processes there. You were saying, sit down with my tea. Then I read. And then I say, well done me. Yes, exactly. And those three parts are A, B, C. There's three parts. What is going to remind me to do the new habit? And tiny habits, we call that an anchor. So that's the A. And the anchor is something you already do, like sitting down for tea or turning off the telly, as you guys would say it. Then the B is the new behavior. You want to have a habit. So reading a paragraph from a book. And then as you do the habit or immediately after you say, good for me, you reinforce yourself. You cause yourself to feel successful. So that's ABC, anchor, behavior, celebration. And so me and Harry, we had New Year's resolutions this year, which, you know, it's March. We haven't been successful with them right now. So I thought I'd put them to you to try and tiny habitify them. So one of them was to build strength. So just get stronger and feel more healthy. What would you do for that? 
type of behavior. Pick the upper body exercise that you want the most. So what do you think Carrie's going to want the most? Let's say he'll do a, he'll do a push-up. I'll make him do them. Push-up. Wall <laughs> push-up, counter push-up, floor push-up. I'll make him get down. Yeah. Floor. Okay. <laughs> and then you don't do 10 or 20. You do one or two. You make it so tiny that it's just super easy to do. Then it's fine. Where does this fit naturally in Harry's life? What does it come after? And it's hard for me to know what Harry's routines are. Where do you think it would fit for Harry? He loves a cup of tea. He loves a cup of tea. Cup of tea. He's always in the kitchen here boiling the kettle. Okay, so good. So then the tiny habit recipe becomes after I start the kettle, I will do two push-ups. And then as Harry stands up, just boom, good for me or way to go or just say I did it. And so Harry, dive in and practice that. And if for some reason that doesn't fit, after you start the tea, then look for another place where it might fit. And then my one was, I have a terrible sweet tooth, but only in the evening. After I've had my dinner, I feel like I have to have chocolate bar or a cake. So I really want to replace it with eating something a bit healthier, like fruit. How can I tiny habitify that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, you are not alone, for sure. You know that, right? This is really common. (laughs) The first thing is to make a list of all the snacks that you might eat after dinner that you consider healthy. On your side, what might be on your list of healthy snacks? I love strawberries and I love strawberries with like a Greek yogurt. So the next step for that is to buy the yogurt and prep the strawberries. Wash the strawberries, get them ready. And if you like them sliced up, get them pre-sliced. Then you would design it into your routine like we did with the push-ups. What would be the specific moment after dinner that you would do that? It'll be taking my plate to the sink because that's when I go okay. to that's when I go to the cupboard. So then, and you would actually write this down. You'd write it down on a note card. After I put my plate by the sink, I will prepare my snack for the evening. And then as you open the fridge and you see those two things, tell yourself, good for me, I'm on my game plan. Let yourself feel successful that you're following through with this game plan you designed for yourself. Now, in addition to that, remove the chocolate from your home. I know, I know this, (laughs) but this is is part of it. It I mean, you don't have to do this, but if you want to increase your chances, try it for three days and see how it goes. I'm going to give that a go. I'm sure it'll help me. It will. And if it works, you keep going. And if it doesn't, that's okay. You don't beat yourself up. It's sort of like decorating a room where, oh, I want to put this new painting on this wall. And if it doesn't fit there, you don't beat yourself up. You just redesign. In the tiny habits method, a big part of it is to iterate, to try things out. And if it doesn't work, you don't blame yourself because it's a design process. And you just accept that as a positive. And I've learned something and you redesign it and try again. You change best by feeling good not by feeling bad. It's been a week since I set the team the walking challenge. So I'm going to see how we've done and which intervention fared best. The results are in and I've had everyone's results except for Harry. Harry, Don Diesta, where are your steps? I um, I didn't record my steps. <laughs> Why? But there, there wasn't much motivation. I think I have walked a lot more. But well, you would say that, motivate. wouldn't you? I didn't switch the health tracker on on my iPhone. You so. need the trundle wheel. 
So given Harry a rough average for his steps, the counts were all added together and this is what the results showed. And so what I can say is that for all of us, no matter what the intervention was, everyone has improved in their step count in the past week. And maybe that's because we were all under a challenge. But the best intervention based on the percentage increase was Otis's. Otis improved by 55% and Otis's intervention. Remind us what it was, Otis. During the walking process, I would be listening to an audiobook. Uh... <laughs> so this week, we've walked as a collective 425,467 steps. Not far enough. Number of steps. That's 177.28 miles. So we almost got there. The target was 460,800. We pretty much hit Warrington. From my house in Warrington, you can drive there in about 15 minutes. So I say we're not far off. And you know what? Because we've done so well, Shelley will come and pick us up in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Shelley's your mum, Julia. Yeah, Shelley's my mum, yeah. Is that a round of applause? That is a round of applause. Well done, everyone. Thank goodness for Shelley. Um, If I actually stuck to what BJ was saying and did press-ups every time I had a cup of tea... I'm going to be super strong, super quick. You are going to be like hench, aren't you? And I'm going to pick some strawberries up on the way home and get slice in. And we all did very well with the steps as well. I'm impressed. Yeah, I, I probably need to put out an apology for the listener as well. For you listening in, <laughs> I should have put in a bit more effort. But a great team, you know, team contribution there. I don't know about you, Julia. I do feel much better equipped to actually making change in the future. Yeah, ditto, I feel... I can tackle my chocolate creeping once and for all. Go on, what's your kryptonite? What chocolate bar is it? Oh, it's vegan, so it's not even good. (laughs) (laughs) It's a crunchy for me. And now it's for our question of the week. Otis Kingsman was tasked with solving this itching problem from Marion. So I've noticed that when I scratch, the itch tends to move to another part of my body. And I just wondered why this happens. Now that's a great question. So how does this happen? Dr. Yvonne Couch from the Radcliffe Department of Medicine is here to help us find the answers. Humans have about 22 feet of skin. And for each square inch of it, there are about a thousand free nerve endings. When these free nerve endings become active, they send signals through your spinal cord to your brain, giving you the feeling of an itch. Scratching an itch is an attempt to remove what is causing these nerves to become active from the surface of the skin. So when we get something like a mosquito bite or some degree of local tissue damage, histamine is released into the skin. It's an inflammatory molecule that's designed to open up your blood vessels and bring more blood to the injured site to fight off any potential infections. But in the process, the histamine stimulates those free nerve endings. In the process of combating our injury, the chemicals in our blood inadvertently make our brain think we're in more distress. Itch signals have been shown to stimulate bits of your brain associated with reward. The signal gets to your brain and a bunch of central processing tells you to scratch the itch. But scratching around the area of the itch causes local irritation in the surrounding skin, which releases more histamine and activates more of those free nerve endings. Because your brain likes it when these endings are scratched, it leads to the itchy area expanding and expanding until your whole body feels itchy. Thank you, Yvonne, for helping us find the answer. Next week, we'll be answering this question from listener Ranjit. As gravity and time have an inverse relationship, will astronauts bring back moon rock to Earth 
that will be older than the earth? Obviously not. But why not? Maybe I need to go somewhere with low gravity to stop me from aging. Got a question? Email us at chris at thenakedscientist.com and we will try to figure it out for you. And that's it for this week. Next time, with an energy crisis looming, are there any alternative ways to generate the power we need for the planet? One way could be to go nuclear. We'll be discussing this form of energy and some of the grand future plans for its use. The Naked Scientists come to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Harry Lewis. This is Julia Avey. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.